This is going to be, that gives you the indication of what sort of sermon you're in for here. Like this is one of those pulpit pounding sort of sermons. Yeah, I broke it the first service. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I just want to, on behalf of the whole team, really want to thank you for uh, not just that gesture of appreciation, but just all the, the love and the care and the encouragement, and the prayers, and the kind ways, and all the, all the different ways that you show your love to us as a, a team here as we serve and lead you. Um, can I just tell you that you are a good church? Not every church is a really good church. You're a good church, and if you're, so, and, I, and I don't, I'm not just saying that because I have to say that. Uh, if, if you're someone that's kind of new to the life of this church, I, I think you're going to find as you get to know New Life Church, this is a good group of people, and um, as tough as a year and a half as this has been, it's been a tough time. Uh, you guys have been awesome. And uh, we have much to celebrate during this season. God is at work. Even just watching that video, being reminded, God is still at work in the world, transforming lives. He's still at work in us and through us. And as a staff, we get to see a lot of that that maybe you don't always see. But God is at work. And um, we have much to celebrate I was celebrating with Al and Natalie James up at the Driscoll home in Inwood yesterday because Al and Natalie James are celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary. And so they're back there in the corner. And when I talk about the sort of church this is, I guess they immediately came to mind because five years ago when I came to this church, it's been five years ago now, um, was that a good woe or a bad woe? What kind of woe was that? Just a neutral woe. Okay. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. But, uh, you know, rest. you're going to go to a church. You mean like they've had one lead pastor 45 years. He still lives in the community. Like, are you, you, you sure? You know, you young guys. Like, aren't you a little worried about that? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was. And then I met Alan Natalie James. And uh, knowing that they were founding members of this church, been here for all 51 years in the life of this church, helped found this church. Natalie is Henry Ozerny's sister. And I don't know that I got any, uh, anyone else has been more encouraging and supportive of me right from day one than you guys. And I want you to know how much that meant to me. Like that said everything to me. Um, how you embraced me and my family. And that's just representative of how this church has embraced us and... Um, it is just a pleasure to serve you. And you're going to have to ask them the story of how they came together, because I heard the story yesterday. It was awesome. It involves lipstick and a cigarette pack, and I'm not going to say any more, but you're going to have to ask them the story. But I was actually thinking as I was driving home from their celebration yesterday, Erica and I, you know what? I wouldn't be in Stonewall if, if Al and Natalie James didn't get married. They got married six years ago. They helped found this church when it was a little Bible study, and Henry came here because Henry was Natalie's brother, and they, started, they turned this thing into a church that I came to almost 50 years later. I was thinking, I would not be here in Stonewall, this place, if you didn't get married. So thanks for getting married, okay? <laughs> and thanks for the example of just a lifelong godly marriage. We need to see that. Thanks for that example. Okay, yeah, and next Sunday we're going to have a celebration here as well. Just, just to give you a heads up. There's going to be cupcakes for everybody because our, the families of our church have continued to be fruitful through these two years, and we've got lots of babies to celebrate, 
And, um, and so we're going to have a big baby dedication. We haven't done that in two years. And so that little guy right there is one of them. And uh, so we're going to have a bunch of families with their little ones up here next, uh, next Sunday. And we're going to celebrate as a church with cupcakes for everyone. It's going to be a good time. But that's something to look, to look forward to next Sunday. So let me ask you a question. Is there such a thing as being too familiar with something? So familiar that you're too familiar with something? Have you ever say, heard that saying, like, seen it so many times you don't see it anymore? Al, I hate to put you on the spot, but what color are Natalie's eyes? If you didn't hear that, he said he's colorblind. Yeah, right. What an out. I don't believe that for a second. But man, you are fast. I would not have come up with that that quick. But what, what color are her eyes? She, she's telling him, just so you know. Okay, all right. Sorry to put you on this spot, but if I were to ask you, like, you know that, that picture that's hanging in your hallway that you walk by and see every day? What is it a picture of? I wonder how many of you would not be able to tell me what the picture in your hallway is because you see it every day. And sometimes when you see something so often, you just stop seeing it, right? I remember in Blind River, the church I was at before coming here, uh, someone came into my office one day, and I've been there years, and they said, uh, don't you water that plant? And I said, what plant? So that big plant in the corner of your office. Oh my goodness, there's a plant there. <laughs> not a little plant, a tall plant, this tall. And it is bone dry. It's been dead for years. I had no idea I had a plant in the corner of my office. So I saw it every day, and I just stopped seeing it. You probably know what I'm talking about, right? I wonder if, if that's true, that dynamic in, in spiritual matters as well. I think it is. I remember when our time in Blind River, we thought was coming to an end. where We're going, God, where do you want to lead us next? I said, you can lead me anywhere, but... Manitoba. Not going back to Manitoba. You know why? Well, I mean, we, we lived, that's where we started. We started in Manitoba. Lived in Niverville. I, my, all my family's from Manitoba. You know, Steinbeck, Blumenort, Winkler, Morden. You know, the Hildebrand name from around here. Mennonite Roots. Um, you know, I, I'd worked at uh, a job in Niverville with a whole bunch of, of guys that had the same background as me. And they knew it all. They had heard, uh, they knew all the answers to the questions, growing up in Sunday school. They knew it all, and yet they didn't know it. Right? They had seen it so many times, they just didn't see it anymore. Oh, they knew it all, but none of them were following Jesus. And I didn't want to be in a place full of people like that. So I said, God, I don't want to go back to Manitoba. And um, God said, you're going to Manitoba. Sometimes he does that. And, uh, but, you know, Stonewall's, you know, it's an all right place. There's, there's not as many uh, Hildebrands in Stonewall. So I think that's true in spiritual matters. And, you know, those guys that I worked with, um, I, I guarantee you, they could have told you the story we're going to look at this morning off the top, like from memory. They would have known the whole story. They would have heard it so many times, they could have taught it, right? And they know the story. They all, that's, that's the parable of the prodigal son, so this is a story we're going to look at this morning. You've probably heard many times before. Some of you, maybe this might be your first time. And maybe you'll have ears to hear it in the way Jesus wants it to be heard, easier than some of us who have heard it a million times. Right? The parable of the prodigal son, I mean, 
we've heard it so many times you don't even hear it, and I think that's why it's even named the parable of the prodigal son, because we think it's a story about one son when it's not. It's not a story about the prodigal son. It's a story about prodigal sons. In fact, the story begins by saying, there was a man who had two sons. But when we hear the story, we only see one person. We only think there's one way to be alienated from God, when actually Jesus is showing us there are two ways of being alienated from God. And two ways of being found by Him. And so this is the story we're going to look at this morning. You've probably heard it, but I'm just going to pray that we hear it with fresh ears and we see it with fresh eyes this morning. Because man, is this uh, a teaching of Jesus that is as powerful as any other. If you have your Bible with you, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke is the one gospel where we have recorded for us this story that Jesus told that you maybe know as the parable of the prodigal son. My Bible calls the parable of the lost son. Jesus tells this story uh, in response to the situation he found himself in. It says at the beginning of Luke 15, it says, there were tax collectors and sinners. They were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes and eats with them. Can you believe that Jesus is welcoming and even inviting people like that? And so Jesus hears this, and he tells them three stories, all about something that's lost and is found. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then kind of the biggest story that we're going to look at, not just this morning, but actually over a few weeks, the parable of the lost son, or let's call it the lost son's. So let me read it for you. Luke 15, it's a bit long, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. And sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants, and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Yet when this son of yours has squandered, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this is a parable, not just a story, it's a parable. A parable means it's a story that has a point, a point that teaches us something really important about God and about His kingdom. And so what we're going to do over the, actually the course of three weeks is we're going to, we're just going to dive into this story because this is not a story just about one person. This is actually a story about three characters. And, and we're going to get a deeper sense of who God is and what His kingdom is like as, in turn, we take a look at all three of these characters. So we're going to do that over three weeks. We're going to settle in this story, and each week we're going to look at one of the three characters, the younger son this morning, the father, and then in a couple weeks' time, the older brother. So this morning, we're just going to settle in the first third of this story here. We're going to look at the younger son, the prodigal son. Now, we're told that uh, this, in, in verse 11, as the story begins, that his father had two sons, and the younger son said to the father, Father, give me your share of the estate. So you probably already know, just by reading that, that that's inappropriate, right? I have seen adult children treat their parents, often their widowed mothers, as an ATM. That's terrible. It's dishonoring, it's disrespectful, it happens all the time. But this is like a whole nother level of insult here. I mean, back in this culture, right, to, to, to ask for your share before your parent is gone is akin to saying, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff more than I care about you. I wish you were dead. So this is just a huge insult here, which in that culture, I mean, would have been worthy of severe punishment. What does the father do? So, he divided his property between his two sons. Now, literally, that word property there in, in the Greek, in this language in which this was written, is the word bios, you know, bio, biology, life. So, literally, what it reads is, then the, um, then the father divided his life between them. I mean, I mean, what Jesus is saying here is, and, and these people would have got it in this agrarian society, like, in order to give his son his share, it's not just like, okay, I got the money in the bank, yeah, here's the check, there you go, son, don't blow it too quickly. No, he had to liquidate his life. He was a farmer. I mean, his value was in his property. 
And that was your status in that day. It was the land you owned. He had to actually go and go through all the work of downsizing, selling off his land so that he could give his younger son this amount. And so literally what Jesus is saying is that what this younger son is asking the father to do is to tear his life apart. It was a double humiliation because of that. Not only does the son want his share before his father is dead, but now the father has the humiliation in the community of having to get rid of his land. But he does it. No condemnation, no recrimination. We're told in verse 13 then, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. In other words, he went as far away from his father as he could. Why would he do that? I mean, why did this guy want to leave? In fact, the son, his position in his father's household was a position of privilege and status. His father was well-to-do, well-respected. He had hired servants. He was a man of status and privilege that belonged to this son, but still he wanted out. Why? Well, maybe it's because he knew his older brother someday was going to get a double portion. That was the law back then, the older son. As the older son, I actually tend to agree with this. I think there's a lot of merit to this idea that the oldest gets more. But apparently today everybody gets the same. So, I mean, hey, whatever. So, but he knew his brother was going to get more, and maybe that bugged him. That just rubbed him the wrong way, even though he had so much. Or maybe, maybe he just, he thought, I wonder, my father living in his home, this is kind of restrictive. I have to abide by my father's ways in his home. You know, this isn't freedom. I'm going to go be free where I can do whatever I want, where I can be whoever I want. No restrictions, just freedom. I think that's what's happening here. And so he goes to do a land as far away from his father as possible, and, and, and those Jewish readers would have understood, this is Gentile territory. These are different sorts of people. These, this is a place where God is not honored. This is a place where God's ways are not followed. And there he blows it all. That word squandered literally means to winnow. Like, you know, farmers, like you, throw the, you throw the kernels up in the air and then the wind takes the chaff and winnows it, blows it away. That's what he did. He was just wasting it. He, he blew it all. And that's what the word prodigal means. Prodigal means this wasteful extravagance. No regard for the future. He just did whatever he wanted to do. Because he thought that's what freedom looked like. But then he found himself in this place where it was gone. You know? He was someone who wanted to define himself and live for himself. To follow, indulge his own appetites, pursue pleasure... This, this son kind of represents someone who thinks that freedom is found in self-discovery or the, maybe the more psychological, sociological term, self-actualization, which means bringing about all of my desires. It means following your heart, 
You can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. Just follow your heart. Do those sort of statements sound familiar? When we get to the elder son, we're going to see that he was alienated from God because of religion. But this younger son was alienated from God because he thought that freedom was found in defining himself instead of letting the father define him. He would be whoever he wanted to be. He would follow his heart. But he found himself having squandered it all, completely broke, in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need, and so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the field, fields to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat, right? So uh, the, the, the whole pig industry is kind of a big industry here in uh, Manitoba, right? When I was... First married, my first job was working with an electrical company in southern Manitoba that worked just in pig barns. Mostly new pig barns that we were wiring, but sometimes we'd go and uh, do some work in some existing pig barns. You'd go in there, you'd see the sights, the smells, and I don't know if you've ever been in a pig barn, but um, they eat anything. Like, I mean literally anything. A pig will eat anything. All the copper clippings of the wires, they'll eat it. You know what? They'll eat you. Literally. In fact, there was the rule that when we were going into these pig barns, if you were going to be up on a ladder, you were not allowed to be alone. Because if you had to go up on a ladder to work on something up high, and you fell off, or they'd even try to bump you off by knocking the ladder, and you fell and hit your head and knocked yourself unconscious, they would eat you alive. Pigs, okay? <laughs> And here he finds himself, and especially to his Jewish audience, they would understand, like, the pigs are the most unclean of animals. In other words, the position he finds himself is at the very bottom of the barrel. He's at the end of his rope. He's got nothing left. Bottom of the barrel, empty. Empty stomach, empty life. And this is not what he envisioned, right? In selfishly pursuing fulfillment, he thought he would find freedom, but he only found enslavement, he only found emptiness. And, and I think this is what Jesus wants to show us in the story. The, the first thing is that sin never satisfies. Sin never ultimately satisfies. I mean, what is sin? Sin isn't just our, our actions, our words, and the things we, we do externally. Sin is a, is a heart condition, right? At its root is to love something else more than you love God, to feel like you need to find that something cannot be found in God, it has to be found somewhere else. And ultimately, sin never satisfies. What Jesus is saying is it's, it's inevitably, it's like candy-coated poisoning. It maybe tastes good for a while, but there comes a time when it comes to the end, and all you're left with is emptiness. Sin always fails to deliver on its promises. Do you know that in your own life in some way? Have you experienced that? You thought you knew? You are going to be free and you were going to indulge this pleasure. You were going to do what you wanted to do and be what you wanted to be and it just led not where you thought it was going to lead. It happens all the time. This is the nature of sin, right? I mean, why do people get into alcohol and drugs? It's to find freedom. Freedom from their stress. Freedom from anxiety, the worries of life. And what does it cause? 
addiction, destruction of relationships, all sorts of harm. But what was it at the beginning? It's a pursuit of freedom, but it just brings slavery. People try to find this in relationships. You'll see people bouncing around from person to person, trying to find in somebody else, some other person, love and acceptance, validation. And so you'll see people, they cannot be alone. They cannot be single. They always have to be with someone. And so they'll find the person that's closest to them, hoping that maybe then they can find love and acceptance. And now that I've got daughters coming to the dating age, you know, which in our house is 25 years old, I figure if you can't rent a car when you're 24, you can't date. You're not mature enough to date. It doesn't matter that I was married at 22 and my wife was married at 20. My kids just won't have that degree of maturity, I'm pretty sure. I'm kidding. You're very mature. But now the shoe's on the other foot. I dated Erica for 10 days when I drove to her family farm to ask her dad if I could marry her. 10 days? What was I thinking? What was he thinking, actually? What think? Okay, I'm getting off track here. But, um, but now that like, I'm starting, Eric and I are starting to talk to our girls about dating. I'm like, girls, what you're going to see out there is you're going to see people. You're going to see clouds. You're gonna see, they're just going to bounce from person to person. They have to be with somebody. And here's the thing, girls. When you do that, when you need to find someone who will give you love, acceptance, you'll just, you always have to be together, it's actually going to keep you from finding the very thing that you're looking for. You will not be able to find yourself in a relationship with a really good person because that takes time, discernment, patience. And so just to have to have that thing now actually becomes an impe- a barrier to find the thing that you really want. It leads you to be empty. It's, it's the same with sexual desire. And some of us will know this firsthand, right? Indulging sexual desire through pornography and other ways, and and actually what that just leads to is a decreased sexual fulfillment. In fact, study after study after study has shown the most sexually satisfied people are, category are, husbands and wives in a committed long-term relationship, and it's not even close. I feel for young people these days, You know, the pressure to have to find yourself because now more than ever, the world is saying, follow your heart, be whoever you want to be, define yourself. No one else can tell you who you are. Only you can tell you who you are. And that sounds like freedom, but it's slavery. Can you imagine the pressure of having to create your identity? The pressure of having to create meaning for yourself? That's crippling. And it leads to mental illness. And that's what we've seen It's an attempt at freedom, but only brings emptiness and sickness, this pressure to find yourself, to create yourself. And we could go on and on, greed, putting things before people like this guy in this story. I'm sure he attracted all these friends because he had money, he was going to blow it all, but then when it was gone, his friends were gone because his greed kept him from establishing real relationships, and he found himself poor with nobody in his corner when he needed somebody. He found that freedom actually delivered slavery. So Jesus is saying, sin never satisfies in the end. Have Have you experienced that in some way in your own life? 
Maybe right now in some way in your own life, you're trying to do it your way, live free from the Father's standards, from the Father's ways. You know, I think there's a way in which we can all see ourselves in the younger son, right? This is a universal experience. I think if you actually go back to the first man and the first woman, this is what you see, right? Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Remember Genesis chapter 2, God makes the first man and the first woman and puts them in this beautiful place, this garden. Kind of like it's the Father's home. It's wonderful. Harmony. And it says at the end of chapter 2, you can throw those verses up there. It says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, Satan came in the form of a serpent and he was more crafty than any of the other animals. And he said to the woman, he said, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because God had made a rule so that they would know, right, that they are in the Father's house. Life is best lived when we live under the rule of the Father. Did God really say that? And the woman said, Well, no, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Well, the serpent said, certainly you won't die, for God knows that when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You're going to let him define who you are? No. No. You define who you are. You define what's good and what's not good. You know what's good and evil. Woman, when woman, and so then, okay, she's like, well, and then she looked at that forbidden fruit, and she's like, well, it does, it does look good, right? She saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, so she took it and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband, Adam, he was standing there with her, and he ate it too. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they were ashamed. There was a change. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And this is a picture, right? This is a picture of when you try to find freedom from God, from allowing Him to define you in your life, in a pursuit of freedom, you actually get shame and fear and insecurity and all sorts of destruction. And you're left empty. And the first problem wasn't that she saw the goodness of the fruit and ate it. The first problem was she questioned the goodness of God. Huh. Is he really that good? Are his ways really that good? They questioned the goodness of God. Like maybe life would be better if I was in charge. So, so what Jesus is saying here is God's rules, his ways. They're not there for our frustration. They're there for flourishing. They're there so that we might live free. They don't keep us from freedom. They keep us free. For sin never satisfies. And there's so many people just pouring water into like broken buckets with holes in the bottom and just, it just doesn't hold. It doesn't satisfy. They find themselves empty. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist to look for that elsewhere? So in verse 17, it says that when he came to his senses, well, he he came to his senses. He saw his state and he realized that he wasn't free at all. He was empty. He was enslaved. 
When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. My, the, the hired men my dad has, they don't even live in the house. They live in the community and they just give like a, a laborer's wage to come and work from. They have more than I have. So he realizes here, when he says he comes to his senses, he, he realizes it's better to be defined by God, by the Father. Freedom is found in the Father's house. When he got homesick, we all get homesick, don't we? What, what makes you homesick? Stirs that longing, that longing to be somewhere, a place of perfect belonging and love. Is that worry? Maybe it's certain smells, tastes, locations. For me, it, uh, it's, uh, I, I try to weave schmont fat into every sermon. Sometimes I have to force it a little bit. It works. Amen. Any amens? Shemot fat? The elixir of the gods, or of the God, I should say, the one true God, the elixir of the one true God. Farmer Sashid Vranika Shemot fat. I actually have a cousin here, so I don't know, Dwayne, if you would remember this, if you have this memory. You're a few years older than I am. But, uh, man, that happy place is my grandma Mary with her hands full of flour, having made Vranika and Winkler, and then being around the table with the family and eating this together. That, so that, that, that meal for me, every time I eat of it, like I'm trying, I'm hoping to recapture some of that. So what is that like in your life? Like we all feel homesickness, this longing to belong. And here's the thing, I can never fully capture it. It's like, it's, it's, it's always a pale you know, reflection of, of, of what my heart actually longs for. And then we start to wonder, is there actually any satisfaction, like, is, is that a longing that has any fulfillment, this longing for home? Does it even really exist? This place? And so he's getting homesick and he's wondering... It's all right, little guy. He's just throwing his amens, hallelujahs. That's the alarm clock. Yeah, 11.58. <laughs> Thanks, Dawson. He decides to return home. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set out and I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. And this is like a Hail Mary. Right, like, you know, the football, like, I got nothing to lose here. My father probably will not take me back. I've burned the bridge, but maybe he'll have compassion on me, and I can be like one of his hired men that lives in town but comes, and I work in the field, and I make a pittance, and I can feed myself, and that would be better than this. It's like, what do I have to lose? And so he gets up, and he goes back to his father. And this is a picture of repentance, not just regret. regret. Regret is I wish I did things differently. Repentance is a step further. It's not just I wish I did things differently. It's I'm going to do things differently now. I'm going to do differently. It literally means to go the other direction, to take a U-turn. So literally, he repented. He got up and he turned 180 and he went back to his father's house. What would he find? 
What he didn't know is that his father was out there scanning the horizon, searching for him, probably day after day. You know, Jesus said, he must have chuckled when he heard these Pharisees say, he even welcomes these people? Because he would say, I came to seek and to save the lost. You know, Jesus was exiled. Jesus went to a faraway land called earth to seek and to save the lost. Right? This is what it says. You see up on the screen here, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, which says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. In other words, he left heaven. He left all that glory and worship, and he came to this earth, and he took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness. He became like one of us, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He went the whole distance to the far-off land seeking why? Well, this is what Peter says, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, say it with me, to bring you to God. Okay? Why did he come? To bring you to God, to bring you back into the Father's home, to bring you back into that place that you were created for, that place where you find all of those longings satisfied. He came to bring you there, into that. And so this, um, this younger son, he gets up and he returns. He's, he's practicing his spiel. God, I'm not worthy to be your son. Would you just take me back as a hired man? And, and I won't read um, every word here, but it says that the father saw, the father ran, the father embraced, the father kissed, the father called for a robe. The father called for a ring. He put sandals on his feet. He had the fattened calf killed, and he threw a feast. And I think we're supposed to see kind of the, the irony or the humor here where when he sees his father, he starts going into this speech. Verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. The very next Verse, it's, this, it's, it's the father saying to his servant, go get the stuff for the son of mine is dead and is alive, is lost and he's found. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Hey, my son has come home. Go get the robe. You know what Jesus is saying is when you come home, you will be fully reinstated into the father's home. You will receive all the privileges of being a son or a daughter of the Father. Hired hand, but he was back at the table, back wearing the ring, back with the robe. He was a son with a full share, just like he was before. He didn't have to work for it. He didn't have to prove himself. He didn't have to go on probation. It was just given to him. He didn't even have to ask for it because he didn't ask for it. He didn't even think he could ask for it. That was asking too much. It was just given to him when he returned, when he repented, which is to say, God, I'm done doing life my way. It doesn't work. I give my life to you. I'm going to do life your way. I trust in Jesus. The son would not be defined by his sin, but would be defined by the father's grace. 
And so lastly here, this is what Jesus wants us to see. Failure isn't final. Failure isn't final. Failure is never final because some of us feel like it is. And, and some of us, maybe we treat others and maybe we treat ourselves like it is. Like, I've messed up. I did this. I can't undo that. The best I can hope for is hired hand in the Father's house. And some of us, you know, I think that maybe we carry this failure, this label. We define ourselves by that. When God doesn't define us by that, we're defined by His grace. He calls us son, child, full share. But these Pharisees, they looked at these these tax collectors and these sinners and wild living, right? Living life their own way with no regard for God. And now they're coming to Jesus and, 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 and the Pharisees are going, it's too late for you. And they just saw their failures, defined them by their sin, wrote them off because their sin was too great, their failure was too great, but Jesus welcomed them. Not only welcoming, but He sought them and He invited them in. I have come to seek and to save the lost. What Jesus is showing them and He's showing us is through Him there is always a way back into the Father's house. There's always a way back to being in that place of full acceptance and love and freedom and meaning under God's care. God is in the restoration business. Next week, we're going to look at the Father. Of course, we know the Father represents God, and we're going to see how radical this vision is of God that Jesus shows us in this story, because this is a radical vision of God. And we're going to look at the Father more next week. But, but just now, kind of bringing this to a close, let me ask you the question. Are you in any way like the prodigal son? In the sense that maybe you're just trying to find fulfillment outside of the Father's home and the Father's ways? Somewhere other than God? Maybe you're someone that hasn't ever, ever, given your life to God. You've just, from the beginning, you've just done life your own way. You didn't even know about Jesus. Maybe there's somebody this morning, you need to actually turn around and you need to give your life to God. You need to enter His home through faith in His Son Jesus who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin that you might know perfect love and acceptance and belonging and freedom and meaning now and eternally. Maybe it means you're defining yourself by some failure, you know, some broken marriage or something in the past, some addiction, some sin that you just hate that you just keep stumbling into. Are you defining yourself through your own terms? Are you defining yourself through the grace of God your Father? For His arms are open and He's ready to welcome you home. So, Is there any way in which you need to come home? To turn from some sin which doesn't satisfy? Or to not define yourself by your failure because your failure is not final? Is there some way this morning in which you need to come home? That's the question I'll leave with you. And and I want to invite us into a moment where we can listen to God and talk with God. Just a moment of prayer. If you want to bow your heads I want to leave you a moment. I'm just going to pray 
here and then leave you a moment to, to listen to him. Father, you are the one place where we can truly belong. Where we can truly be loved, we can be accepted, we can be free, free from worry, free from fear. And we just thank you that your grace is here today, right now, for each and every one of us. Your grace is more than enough for any of our sins and any of our failures. And so, God, we just we just believe that. We will not find rest for our souls apart from you. We will only find that in you. And so just speak to us right now. I'm going to give a moment, God, for you to maybe uh, speak to, to anyone here in the room, Lord, and just show us, is there any way in which we have left your table? We kind of left your home, and we need to turn around, and we need to come back. Would you show us that? Father, I think of those kind of key words in the story where it says the young son, he got up and he returned to his father. And I just pray that you would give each and every one of us uh, just the, the ability, the courage just to get up from wherever we are and return to you and live in the freedom that is found only in your house. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.